Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Professor Sonia Contera. Sonia Contera is Professor of Biological Physics in the Department of Physics at the University of Oxford. Her work lies at the interface of physics, biology and nanotechnology, with a particular focus on the role of mechanics in biology. She is the author of the book, Nano Comes to Life, How Nanotechnology is Transforming the Future of Biology. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss nanoscience and nanotechnology and the convergence of sciences such as physics and biology. Sonia, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Hello and thank you for having me. Sonia, uh, let us first try to understand the term nano. At what scale, at what size does nanotechnology operate? How small it is? This was a, um, actually one of the um, original questions of the field that took much controversy. Actually, it took years <laughs> of discussion, uh, especially in places like the European Union, to decide what is a nanomaterial, because this has legal implications. Uh, when you create a technology, when is it nano, when is it not nano? The term comes from the 1970s, 1979. It was first coined by a Japanese researcher that was interested in, in nanotechnology um, in semiconductors. But it was made popular in the West by the book of Eric Dressler, Engines of Creation, where he first um, said that machines, nanomachines, will be built at the nanoscale. For me, uh, so the official definition, uh, industrial definition of nanotechnology is something below 100 nanometers in dimension, in one of the dimensions. So um, a nanometer is uh, to a meter uh, what a tennis ball is to the diameter of the earth. So that's nine orders of magnitude smaller than a meter. But um, for me, um, the key of nanotechnology and the, and the fundamental um, property of the nanoscale that makes it special is that um, is the, the, the dimensions of the biomolecules of life. So proteins are DNA are nanomachines. The diameter of DNA is two nanometers. Proteins can be small proteins are one, two, three nanometers. Big proteins aggregates can be up to 100 nanometers. And the key of being at this scale, being soft in water, that made it possible, the emergence of life, is that when you're so small and you are in water, you can extract energy from the water molecules around you that are moving, they have temperature. And that energy, because you're soft, you can move with the molecules of water hitting you, temperature for a physicist is movement, movement of molecules, means that you can use that temperature to create shapes that move, to create movements. And those movements of the molecules can be used to catalyze chemical reactions, for example. Or a molecule can absorb light and create a movement that, again, can catalyze a chemical reaction or produce uh, something else. So basically, at the nanoscale, all the things are coupled. Physics, chemistry, electricity, mechanics. And that makes it possible, the origin of life. So that's why now technology, and that's why I wrote the book, Nano Comes to Life, 
um, is the dimensions of life, is the dimensions of the nanomachines that make life possible. And that's why we are interested in this dimension to create the future technologies as well. Nanotechnology is our ability to visualize and fabricate matter at the nanometer scale. Talk us through the development and evolution of uh, tools and technologies that enable us to see and interact uh, with matter on such a small scale. Yeah, so um, early 20th century, the only way we could see uh, or infer the structure of matter at this scale were X-ray diffraction. Um, so that necessitated crystals um, to be able to, to infer the positions of atoms in those crystals. So they were not in, in watery living environments or, or whatever. But this made it possible to, to see the atomic structures for things such as DNA, uh, by Rosalind Franklin, and, and all the atomic structures of proteins. But the key developments that allowed people to really interact with matter at the nanoscale came later in the 1980s. In my book, I, I mentioned the technique that I do, which is why I do this technique, um, the scanning tunnel and microscope, the atomic force microscopes, where the first instruments that allowed to see matter at the nanometer and atomic scale with atoms one by one, not diffraction, not averages, actually do. And they do it not by using light, like conventional microscopes or even electrons, like an electron microscope. They use it by uh, using a probe, like a nano finger, a finger that is atomically sharp. And this, this uh, nano finger is probe that's why they call it scanning probe microscopes, are controlled by a complex feedback mechanism that is able to track the position of this nano uh, finger as it moves across the surface. And by using clever physics, sometimes uh, quantum tunneling, sometimes uh, the physics of the forces of the interactions between this very sharp tip and the sample, you are able to reproduce an atomic precise picture of what you're trying to see. It's like being blind and passing your finger over a surface. You can, if you, you, you can actually know the shape of the surface. And another thing you can know when you are blind and you're trying to identify objects with your fingers is you can know if they're soft and hard. You know if the interactions of your finger with the instrument and you can interact with it. So these atomic force microscopes and scanning tunnel microscopes allow us to push and pull individual atoms. And I think these pictures uh, where you show for the first time that you cannot only see atoms, but you can move them around, really brought nanotechnology to the forefront of science. Um, nanotechnology was thought from the 1950s from Richard Feynman, but actually we could actually see it it didn't happen. So most of the nanotechnology centers indeed in Europe, in Japan and the US in the 1990s, early 2000s, sprouted from scanning probe microscopes labs. And that's why I do this field. I started off as a scanning probe microscopist um, because I was interested in matter at the nanoscale. So um, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Um, so these instruments really triggered the beginning of nanotechnology. Before uh, the development of these tools uh, and technologies, as you briefly described a few moments ago, uh, we would uh, crystallize uh, living matter to make observations at very small scale. But these new 
tools and technologies uh, enable us to see how literally biology or if I may say uh, life works uh, at the nanoscale. Yeah, that's right. So people like me um, started to use these microscopes to put them in water uh, because we wanted to see, as I said at the beginning, the working of biology's nanomachines in their environment. Um, so that is the beginning of atomic force microscopy of biological systems, which, which I did from the beginning of the field, more or less. And in time, they did not only allow us to um, just see their shapes in liquid, but actually see the dynamics, how they move. So the development of high-speed atomic force microscope, which is still a very difficult technique and very few people do is allowing us to see how biomolecules actually perform these tasks such as rotation of movement, extracting energy from the environment. And gradually will allow us to link up, not just with the physics of thermodynamics, so actually going back to the origin of thermodynamics, if, if you remember, you know, like the origin of machines, where people were trying to understand uh, how machines work by the use of energy. So we're doing similar things now with nanomachines, which are more complicated because they are systems that are not in equilibrium. And it's letting us link up with other fields such as uh, computation, natural computation, how biological systems not only extract energy to perform tasks, but are able to um, manage information um, to, to produce um, clever, intelligent beings. Um, so yes, this, this convergence of nanophysics, computer science is at the center of, of, of the cutting edge of, of, of material and biological sciences right now. This nicely brings us uh, to my next question. In the book, you discuss convergence of different sciences. Uh, you are a physicist, uh, uh, but you are studying the mechanics and physics of biology at uh, nanoscale. And the outcome of your research informs us uh, how important uh, uh, the convergence of uh, various uh, sciences is. Yeah, I argue actually that physics was always worried with biology. It's just we couldn't tackle it. If you look at the history of physics in the 19th century, X-ray diffraction was immediately used to understand DNA. Um, but at the same time, uh, people like Alan Turing on, or Johnny von Neumann were obsessed by biological intelligence and they were trying to build computer programs that were able to, to become intelligent. People like Schrodinger, um, 1940s, his book, um, uh, The Physics of Life, or the original, I don't remember, Life, Life, or whatever it was called, he was concerned about how the universe actually creates matter that reduces entropy, becomes complicated, how the universe produces life. So the biggest mystery for physics, which has always been at the interface between science and philosophy, is actually to understand how humans understand the universe. And this is biological. We want to understand intelligence. We know why we come to this earth and, and why humans are able to interpret nature this is also at the center of Einstein theory of relativity. The reason he thinks about uh, general relativity is a profound rethinking about how we perceive and process information about the universe. So it's a natural path for a physicist once we have the tools 
to go and interrogate and go back to the main questions. What is life? What is life intelligence? What is complexity? So most, I, I would also argue that most, and also I, I do a little bit of discussion in the book about what is physics and what is creativity and technology. And um, so for most of the sciences from the 17th century to the 20th century, we were interested in looking at how things are built with microscopes, the building parts of, of things. Um, so as humans, we are usually overwhelmed with a very complex world, our social world, our natural world. And yet we can construct tools to look at the constituents of matter, of the constituents of reality, the simple bits that assemble into our complex reality. So most of the sciences up to now were dealing with just identifying the bits. Um, so this tension between simplicity and complexity, uh, which is drives our technology. So as soon as we learn the building blocks, how they interact with each other, we build things with them. So we learn about quantum theory and, and so we build computers, mixing things together, trying to, trying to create tools. But we are now in a different point of history. We're in a history where finally using computers and, and, and using the tools of nature, we're more interested in complexity. We're more interested in the other end. Can we actually understand complexity using computers, using new intelligence? And that changes the way we're doing technology. We're not just looking for the building blocks. Uh, we're looking how the interactions, complex interactions of building blocks emerge into complex behaviors. And that changes the way we do technology, I think, I hope, and um, changes our relationship with nature, which is also something I discuss in the book, and changes is the moment where biology becomes physics, with complexity becomes the central uh, part of, of the physics uh, endeavor. Um, and I think you can see this uh, everywhere in computer science, in, in material science, in robotics, there's this convergence into biology because we are trying to finally tackle one of the biggest questions of humans, which is complexity. And something we had forgotten in the West, mainly since the 17th century, not in the East, in Eastern philosophies, complexity has always been very important. Um, but we are reconnecting um, with our interest in complexity. And that's why I think physicists are now in biology. Uh, you also make another interesting point uh, in the book, and in your uh, publications that uh, these nanoscale technologies enable us to interact with matter at nanoscale and enable us to build nanoscale structures in a bottom-up manner and not in a top-down manner. What is the significance of uh, being able to build nanoscale structures uh, in a bottom-up manner? So... Maybe we can come to one of my favorite examples that now everybody is talking about. Um, even though when I wrote the book, this had not happened. Everybody is now interested in DeepMind, uh, which uh, are producing their program, I think they call AlphaFold, um, uh, because they, they, they say they, they're using the algorithms of, of Google. Um, they're able to optimize the um, algorithms to, to, to predict protein structures. What does this mean? 
Um, so we are made of proteins. Uh, all our body is made of proteins. These nanomachines that are, are connect us to the world and do all the all the all the things that happen inside of us. And the information to produce these proteins is encoded in our DNA. That's the central dogma of biology in complex ways. There's not just one gene for one protein. Different genes interact inside the computer of the DNA nucleus um, to create proteins. So one of the hopes of medicine is that we know the structures of all the proteins in our body. So we can, for example, create drugs and, and tackle diseases. But this is very costly. As you said before, you, we need um, extra diffraction, although these days with cryo-electromicroscopy, things are starting to go faster. But there was always this quest to, can we just predict in a computer uh, the form of a, of a protein if we knew what it, how the chain that is made from, the polymeric chain that is made of. This, prote this problem was thought to be impossible. Um, so decades of work um, and, and a lot of very clever uh, people, including citizen scientists, all sorts, um, managed to produce the first positive results about four or five years ago. Basically, David Baker at the University of Washington showed that you could predict the structure of a complex person with a computer. Um, so what does it mean? Um, so the key to success was not to use a computer program like physicists usually do, which is just to get all the parts and try to interact with each other. But they realized that the only way they could uh, tackle this problem was to use genetic information. What does it mean? It takes the evolutionary history of that protein over the years using the genetic databases. So that is a radical new way of actually predicting something using the history of evolution on Earth. Um, and what AlphaFold does, now Google um, does, is to bring their AI optimization algorithm to make this, this problem, this, this, the, the work that was already done before, faster and better. What does this mean? That we can now know much better the, the structures of proteins and where are we made of. But the most interesting thing for me as a nanotechnologist, what the, the group of David Baker did, as soon as they got an algorithm, to predict protein structure, they use it in reverse. They went to the computer, they design a protein that does not exist in nature, is a nanomachine made by humans, and then they design the DNA, the genes that would encode for that protein. And instead of building it top down, like we were just putting the atoms in place, they got the gene and put it in a cell. And a cell using the principles of what we call now synthetic biology is able to produce the protein with atomic precision. So we have a new creativity, what I was saying before, the creativity of complexity. We're not building top down, we're letting a cell to be the nanomachine for us, atomically precise, in which we don't quite understand. We roughly know what the cell is doing, but we don't know all the different steps that the cell is doing to producing our protein is a complex computation um, that we're using in the cell. Um, the biological computer of the cell is making the machine for us, the nanomachine for us. And the products are astonishing. And actually, during the pandemic, one of the members of the group of David Baker, this is follow-up from my book that came after, but I was happy it came because I predicted it in the book. So one of the members of the group of David Baker used one of these nanomachines that he created to make a COVID vaccine that is now in clinical trials in Korea. Um, so 
this is already, um, you know, we already have two nano vaccines that are really attacking the pandemic in the most effective way. We had the first two nanomedicines that have been deployed the whole world, the vaccines of Pfizer, BioNTech, and uh, Moderna based on nanoparticles. But we already see what is the gen next generation, the engineered nanocages um, built by, by synthetic uh, biology systems. Um, so we are there. We're starting to be able to design uh, drugs that are not built in a top-down approach, um, but still they're atomically precise. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we really are right now in, at the interface of bio-nano in medicine. We will uh, get back to proteins and various uh, applications of uh, nanotechnologies in a few moments. However, I'm keen to dig deeper and explore further this question that these technologies enable us to build artificial nanostructures nano uh, using both uh, uh, biological molecules and the organizational principles of biology. So, what are these principles of biology that we are borrowing from nature to create synthetic biology? Well, um, my book, and I'm not an expert in synthetic biology, but indeed touches on it. So um, I was more interested in things like um, what can, how can we use biological molecules to construct things? I mentioned DNA nanostructures, protein nanotechnology. The thing is, we still don't really know the organizational principles of biology. We're starting to know them. We build that from the nanometer up, but the main problem remains of what happens then. So from nanometer to organ to, to systems level, there's a lot of levels of complexity, which are the next frontier. Uh, and, um, and this is very much an area that I also um, touch in the book, which is um, uh, tissue engineering. So um, tissue engineering is trying to repair the body and hence it's trying to construct structures that fit <laughs> with, it, with the organizational principles of biology from the nanometer scale up. Uh, so this is work in progress. We need to understand how cells communicate with each other. And cells don't just communicate with each other chemically. Uh, they're complex computers that communicate with each other mechanically and electrically as well as chemically um, in complex way we are trying to understand. So at the nanoscale, we are learning how to create a nanostructures out of DNA that can turn into a, a tiny little computer or a nano cage or, or, or um, even the, subs the substrate for, for building something else or, or, or protein nanostructures that can be used as drugs or vaccines, or even they can be uh, made to evolve. One of the most interesting things that the group of David Baker has done is to create an artificial virus uh, that doesn't exist in nature with the DNA inside, and then they throw it into a group of cells and is able to evolve over time, making it possible, for example, in the future to create vaccines uh, that evolve. Uh, now we, we know with the, now we're all very experts in, in vaccines with the pandemic. So I think we understand this better. But the challenge remains of how biological structures assemble themselves um, from the nanometer scale up into cells and cells into tissues. Um, these are very complex problems uh, that involve uh, 
very new uh, physics, physics of, of, of information, um, and, 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 and actually necessitates a lot of uh, sciences converging together to be able to solve them. Um, this is, this is the, the, the frontier we have right now. From engineering perspective, when people talk about nanotechnologies, uh, when people talk about nanorobots, a picture of nanoscale mechanical robots, nanoscale mechanical devices comes to mind. But the approach that you and your colleagues are following is different. Uh, your approach is to borrow principles of mechanics of biology uh, that exist in nature and build nanoscale structures from bottom up. And this leads to the development of nanotechnologies and nanobots uh, that are based on biology. That is the nanobots. I think the initial ideas that we could construct top-down nanorobots are now pretty much abandoned, apart from, from some cases where you can do micro-robots based on particles. But actually, as I said before, we can borrow the, the principles of biology, such as, I mean, basically protein nanotechnology built in, this, in the way I, I explained before basically solves the problem. You can design a nano machine in your computer and you don't need to build it top down you just get a cell to build it for you i don't think we will ever there's no point and we cannot replicate this capacity of cells to produce uh, proteins in the future people are trying to create cell-free um, systems that are able to produce proteins if you know the genetic information or minimal cells so trying to create artificial cells that are able to become factories of proteins for us. But again, it will be this hybrid between um, biology and, and physics. I don't think um, our top-down approaches that, that we have used um, up to now, very reduction is our, have any meaning when we go into the nanoscale in order to produce uh, nanorobots that are able to interact with biology. Um, they will not survive in a natural organism. Um, basically, the, the BioNTech vaccines are nanorobots, right? They um, are our nanorobots, and they are they are made of biological molecules. I am keen uh, to further explore this example that you gave a few moments ago that we are now able to design protein in a computer simulator. Uh, from that simulated protein, we can figure out what kind of genome will produce such protein. Uh, we then create that genome and by putting this in a real cell, we can create this protein in reality. This seems fascinating. It's brutal. And I think this is where I feel a bit disappointed with all the news of alpha fold that I get in the, in, the, in, the, in the press. They talk about protein structures and they're not talking about that we can actually now create artificial proteins using that. Actually, this idea that we can create proteins or get bacteria actually 
to create proteins has been known for a long time ago. These are the recombinant proteins that we use, for example, in antibodies treatment. So we can, we know, we use the tricks of bacterial biology. So all the work of people over many years to understand bacterial biology means that now we can put a piece of DNA in a bacterium and the bacterium can produce a protein for us. What we used to do is to use the genome of a known protein, natural protein. What the work of David Baker and all these people that have been able to predict protein structures means is that you can work in reverse. You can actually, in the computer, create a protein that you know is going to survive. You know it's a protein because it's, it's built with the building proteins, with the building principles of proteins. Is what they call a post-evolutionary protein. So they use all these clever algorithms to create a structures that are not in nature, but we know they can survive in nature and then go in reverse and get, of course, the, the structures they, they, they create, I think I put them, some uh, one of the figures in my book is, has them, are simple. They're not sophisticated proteins. They're just a structural. They don't do anything else. But I predict that these structural proteins will, in time, will produce also a revolution in materials, in, in electronics. Um, solid state physicists still don't know that these things exist. Um, I'm in a condensed matter physics department and they don't know, they're very interested in new, uh, what they call quantum materials, nanostructure materials. I think the moment where they realize um, that these things exist and we start having the first theoretical physicist uh, condensed matter physics that incorporate these kind of structures into their simulations, we will have a new era of, 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 of uh, quantum devices. So this will be a new convergence between quantum sciences and biological sciences, which is again one of the new frontiers of physics. When does a quantum system become classical and is there any quantum computation needed for biology um, or the emergence of life on Earth? So th th there's this mystery of quantum mechanics since the early 20th century. What does it mean that when you go very small, nature behaves with different rules? And this has not been interfaced with biology. But the fact that physicists like me are now in physics departments with biology means that at the nanoscale, you expect that quantum phenomena that are not uh, trivial, uh, you know, like we know there's quantum tunneling in, in biology and, 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 you know, quantum bonds are, bond, like chemistry is quantum, but actually more sophisticated quantum operations, uh, are they happening in biology? And funnily enough, this is one of the areas that people working in quantum devices are starting to explore. Uh, so it's the new field of quantum biology. Um, and I think um, this, this capacity of creating proteins that don't exist in nature will allow us perhaps to create experiments that, that help us to understand the limits between the quantum and the classical world. Um, so I think this opens enormous possibilities. I think it will take decades to do that. Um, again, things are known for a long time until Every, all the pieces, jigsaw puzzles come in place. I, I was just reading now, right now before we spoke that, uh, uh, you know, neural networks uh, uh, as a computing paradigm were starting to be thought of in the 1930s. 
and it almost took you know 80 90 years to actually have artificial intelligence able to translate based on these ideas um so it takes a long time till people have from people have the ideas that everything converges um into applications in the real world um but i think the pace of convergence of sciences is quite high right now I was also reading right now how China's new budget for research um, is, is putting all these preferential uh, areas of growth in AI, neuroscience, nanotechnology, biotech, all these areas that are converging into the nanoscale for creating new computing paradigms, new medicine, new materials. Um, so I suppose... Um, these things are, 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 are likely to accelerate, I would say. And perhaps uh, the convergence of various sciences is going to be at the heart of uh, such uh, developments? More than the convergence, I, I think that fundamental sciences are going to become central again. Physics, mathematics, um, computer science um, will their preoccupation with biology, the fact that biology becomes central to computer science, to mathematics and to physics, will produce uh, the convergence. So, um, because these are fundamental questions that need to be put in a fundamental framework, um, the, the framework of, of, of knowledge that, that is deepest, right? Like physics and mathematics. And, and, and I, I do think that it's not just convergence of sciences, it's actually convergence into when biology becomes physics, when biology becomes mathematics, complexity becomes the technology we can make. Are there uh, other interesting applications of uh, DNA nanotechnology? that are being developed and uh, may come out soon? DNA nanotechnology was invented by Nadian Seaman, who was trying to make computer models of DNA structures. And he realized you could make, uh, use DNA not as a, think about it as a molecule of life, but actually as a building block, that you could use the capacity of DNA to create um, the complementarity that different DNA bases can be used as Lego to create things. He says he was inspired by uh, Escher, uh, a drawing of Escher, who himself was, was uh, inspired by crystallography. I think his brother was a crystallographer. So inspired by, 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 by science, he, he manages to, to inspire DNA nanotechnology. So he started to demonstrate that DNA could be used for creating an array of different shapes. And, and now, right now, about 100, I don't, I don't remember, I have the precise name or, or number of, of labs that all over the world has been working for a long time in creating structures with DNA. However, there's this limitation of what you can do with DNA. Um, it's become quite standardized. Now you can download computer programs that would allow you to make, um, design DNA structures, and then you can shop DNA strands from companies, and then you can build them. And then you can look at them with an, with an, with an atomic force microscope. Um, uh, so DNA nanotechnology has been very useful to see what is possible. However, there's so much versatility you can do with this. So it will probably will become a scaffold for some materials of the future. 
but so far has not been used in anything practical. Whereas protein nanotechnology is, is already being used in vaccines. I think protein nanotechnology is poised to make a much bigger technological and medical impact than DNA nanotechnology. But DNA nanotechnology was the first. And I think in that way, uh, it paved the way, but it came after. And conceptually was very important, the idea that you can create structures, including self-assembly structures out of DNA. So one of the most interesting things about DNA nanotechnology is that it demonstrated that it, you could make algorithms to, to understand self-assembly of DNA structures. So there's this famous work where, where you could use a virus of, of a, uh, sorry, the DNA of a virus and, and, and design these little staples of DNA that you could just put in a, in, in a tube and the whole thing and shake and, and the whole thing would assemble into any shape you want. Um, so what, that was the demonstration that um, computation is important for realizing self-assembly. Um, so DNA nanotechnology was, an in, was a still is an important step and bits of DNA nanotechnology, I'm sure, are gonna be used in technologies of the future. But I doubt we're going to have anytime soon an application of DNA nanotechnology. I think we will have applications of protein nanotechnology much quicker, we already do, uh, that we will have of DNA. You seem to be very curious and very optimistic. And you seem to suggest that uh, once uh, we are able to understand uh, these uh, processes at nanoscale, this may enable us to address some foundational questions about life. Uh, this may even enable us to address some foundational questions about uh, the universe. Well, I think what the new technologies and the new way of thinking bring us is to understand the idea that the universe, so to put life in the context of the physics of the whole universe, to, to bring biology into physics, changes the kind of questions we can make. Um, so, um, yeah, as I say in the book, it sort of reconnects us. Um, so with, 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 with philosophy, it reconnects us with, even with religion, why humans can understand the universe and, and how the um, universe it encoded on us. So one of the interesting things we're learning from artificial intelligence based on neural networks is that, for example, um, before the computer, the, the point where artificial intelligence algorithms were starting to be able, for example, to translate languages uh, was the point where the structure of the algorithm started to mimic, even though in a very primitive way, the structure in which the neurons are arranged in your brain. So this layer structure. So it's, in a way, it's mimicking also the layer structure of the universe, right? And in ways we don't know, when you layer your algorithm, it becomes able to start to understand layer structures such as language. So these are very old preoccupations of humans. The idea that in human language somehow encoded the rules of, of the world, the rules of God. That's why it's so important, the language for Muslims and, and, and grammar in Semitic languages are also in, um, in, in, um, in all the uh, Hebrew tradition. The idea that in grammar there are hidden numbers 
the Kabbalah, the hidden numbers that would tell us about the thinking of God. If you want, this is what we're doing now in a, in a natural way. So our algorithms are able to start to interpret human language are also giving us why our brain um, is able to interpret the universe. Why, which is the main business of physics, humans can interpret the rules that govern the world. These are profound philosophical questions um, um, which are now starting to be asked from the realm of physics and the realm of computer science and biology, which I think that's why it makes it so interesting. So we are built up from the nanoscale into hierarchical structures. And the reason why we can interact with the environments because the environment created us. We're entangled with the whole universe around us. And that's why we can understand it. So by developing the computer programs and the physics models that allow us to understand why we understand and why we create it, um, can we adapt? We also reconnected um, with very old human questions. And this is one of the things I, I very vaguely explore in my book, that if we take this in a positive way, we can actually help us to reconnect with, with ancient human cultures. From and, and you can find ramifications of the new theories of complexity and new theories in biology, in Christianism, in Islam, in Taoism, in Buddhism, in Hinduism. And, um, and you can reconnect with a lot of our human stories, um, which are now turning to be very insightful about um, how biology works. Sonia, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss uh, in your book, Nano Comes to Life, how nanotechnology is transforming the future of biology. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you suggest we should discuss uh, before we close this discussion? One of the things um, that nanotechnology was thought from the very early days, actually from the 1980s, was that it could improve the treatment of cancer. So cancer drug development has stuck. Um, the treatment of cancer with drugs, in there's very few drugs that have come to the market in the last 10 years. And those drugs don't really work very well. Um, they, they, in average, in average, I think they just extend, I'm talking about solid tumors. With leukemias, things are working better. But with solid tumors, we don't get better. The treatment of pancreatic tumors or, or other types of tumors remains more or less the same. They just manage to extend life for a couple of months. There are many reasons for these, uh, but if we talk about complexity, one of the main reasons is that tumors can get rid of them. They can compute a solution out of it. They're alive, and if you cool a few cells, the cells will adapt and they will compute ways of moving forward, which is what we call resistance to the treatment, in the same way that bacteria grow resistant to antibiotics because they can compute solutions to our drugs. But in the last 10 years, a revolution is taking place in which instead of, again, a reductionist approach, 20th century approach, in which we just produce a drug to target a specific gene or a specific protein, instead of doing that, we're trying to train the immune system to get rid of the tumors. Again, like we did with the proteins and protein nanotechnology, we are not... Um, 
We're using complexity. We're using the capacity of the immune system to produce complex computations to get rid of tumors. So what we do is to give them clues um, to, to the immune system to identify tumors as a, something they can get rid of. This is what we call immunotherapies and they're becoming very powerful. And uh, people may not know that BioNTech and Moderna they were built before the pandemic based on the work of, of pioneering work of Catalin Carico that now everybody knows, but she was being mistreated and, and, and treated really by the bioscientific community for a very long time for her pioneering ideas. So basically they, they exist not to treat the pandemic, but to create new immunotherapies for cancer. So these companies uh, collected IP from all over the world to be able to produce these nanoparticles with this messenger RNA that are able to go to the immune system and do what they're doing with COVID, um, produce an immune reaction against it, against cancers. I think the push that we have with the pandemic, with the vaccines, nanovaccines, and the money that these companies are making are going to advance the treatment of cancers a decade because now they're already doing it. Uh, they have clinical trials for it. They're going to use these nanoparticles to put messenger RNAs into the, our immune system to get rid of tumors. I think, again, dealing with biology with new paradigms, new creativity based on complexity, not just on individual building blocks, will have a big revolution in cancer treatment. And nanotech will be key, like we are seeing with the vaccines of Moderna BioNTech, because they will be key to deliver that information in the shape of proteins or in the shape of mRNA or in the shape of any other molecules that are used to target the immune system. Professor Sonia Contera, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you so much for having me. I always love talking about this these topics, especially now that we have a pandemic that is uh, brought uh, some of the ideas of my book to, to the whole world. And also it's timely uh, because the paperback edition of the book is coming up uh, at the end of this year. Um, so, all, uh, yeah, so um, I, it was my pleasure to be able to discuss the content of the books with you. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.